Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. My name is Zach Rhodes. You're listening to episode 66 with Professor William Irvin. Unless you're Jeff Bezos, then it's been a tough last 9 to 10 months. Somehow, though, back in March when my state, I live in Vermont, started closing restaurants and telling us to stay in our homes, back when we didn't know anything about the virus and nobody had masks, when we all thought the virus lived on surfaces for weeks and that's how we would catch it, my natural tendency was to make a logical and calm appraisal of the situation and to do everything healthy and good that I could possibly control and not to be bogged down by the things that I could not control. And to be honest, this has not always been my knee-jerk disposition in the face of adversity. I think maybe it's a mindset and a way of living that I've only taken on in the past three, four years. And becoming a father has definitely contributed to this. But as time went on into April, May, June, July, I noticed myself becoming exhausted trying to maintain this mindset. And things just became exhausting. I couldn't withstand being hypervigilant day after day for six, seven, eight, nine, ten months. So I've been trying to nurture and hone that logical and calm kind of mindset that I mentioned earlier while staying in the moment and being in touch with my emotions and my reactions to them. I've done a variety of things to practice this in the past few months, something that I called mindfulness. But I've since learned that my way of coping with uncertainty and adversity, well, when I'm at my best, is actually probably something more like stoicism. Having learned this, I read this great book called A Guide to the Good Life, which helped me understand why this kind of a mindset that I've sort of adopted is so useful and functional, why it's called stoicism as opposed to mindfulness, even though the two things are compatible. And this book, A Guide to the Good Life, also offered tricks and exercises to continue practicing and living a stoic kind of life. The author of the book is William Irvin. He's a professor of philosophy at Wright State University, and he's written several books about stoicism. I've come to learn that many people consider the book that I just mentioned, A Guide to the Good Life, a definitive guide to applied stoicism in the 21st century. I just knew it as a book about stoicism that I found on Amazon. So I couldn't help but to reach out to Professor Irvin and ask him to discuss stoicism in his book and to offer insight about how to live like the Stoics, especially in such an uncertain, strange, and these potentially frightening times. I mean, the worst that could happen was he'd say no, but happily, he got right back to me. It was a fun conversation. And uh, I'll just say one more thing before I send you to the interview. People who are familiar with my work in the addiction field will recognize a lot of the topics that we address today because the founders of cognitive behavior therapy, both Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis, based their work in Stoic or Stoicism principles. And if you're familiar with my work, then you'll notice, as we get to the segment where we discuss addiction and cognitive behavior therapy, that Professor Irvin and I have a fundamental disagreement about what addiction means and what drugs do or don't have to do with it. Did not push back or argue. I don't know what would have happened if I had done so. Maybe I would have discovered that we disagree even more than it seemed on the surface, and it would have bogged down the conversation. Or maybe I would have found out that we have a lot more compatibility than it seemed. But I didn't go down that route because I just didn't have time. I believe that his beliefs and teachings about stoicism are important and hold up either way. I'll let you decide for yourself. Please enjoy this enlightening conversation about Stoicism and how to live a good life with author, lecturer, columnist, and professor William B. Irvin. I'm here with Dr. William Irvine, a professor of philosophy at Wright State University and the author of several books about the philosophy of life, many of those about Stoicism, including the one that I'm reading now, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. 
Uh, Bill, I think that you prefer to be called Bill. Thank you sure, for being Bill. with me. Yeah, hey, thank you for inviting me. If you study philosophy, teach philosophy, and are interested in the philosophy of life, I can understand why you would at least stumble across or have to contend with Stoicism. I'm interested in how you got interested in Stoicism as somewhat of a main focus. Well, that was uh, an, an utter accident. So I had just turned um, 50 and decided that I it was a great time to have a midlife crisis, you know, if I was ever going to have one. So I had a low-grade midlife crisis, you know, nothing uh, dramatic, no fancy sports cars or anything like that. But what I did is I decided I was going to become a, a Zen Buddhist. Mm. And being a, a careful, thoughtful kind of guy, I thought, well, let me do some research on Zen Buddhism before I take the leap. And then um, being a calculating kind of guy, it, it dawned on me that in doing the research for Zen Buddhism, that could also become material for a book. And so... Um, it's what I call a twofer, that is two for the price of one. So as, a, as a, uh, an academic, you know, one of the things they uh, promote us for and pay us for is doing research and, and turning out books, turning out articles. And so it dawned on me that uh, in the research I did for personal reasons to learn more about Zen Buddhism, I could, with a little bit more effort, turn it into perhaps a publishable uh, book. And, but to, to make that happen, I would have to broaden out beyond Zen Buddhism and talk about other approaches that have been given in the last uh, more than 2000 years on what your goal in life should be and about how to have a good life. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, besides covering Zen Buddhism, I'm going to talk about the alternatives. One of them was Stoicism. Now I had encountered Stoicism as a philosophy major in college. But the strange thing is I, I had encountered it in logic class because mm -hmm. the Stoics, the ancient Stoics, um, were, uh, were the pioneers in developing what's called propositional logic. Um, and that's what makes your cell phone work. That's what makes computers work. Uh, and they weren't thinking in those terms, but they were thinking in, in uh, terms of and or uh, if then uh, kinds of statements. So I encountered them there, but nowhere else in my philosophical courses. And that's kind of uh, disappointing because I had started taking philosophy courses because as a high school senior, I had read Walden by uh, Henry David Thoreau. And, uh, you know, he talks about this whole notion of, well, what is a good life? What should you be aiming for? Not day to day, but over the course of a lifetime. And I thought, well, if that's what philosophers do, then sign me up because that's what I want to do. Uh, very quickly discovered that at that time, this would have been in the early 1970s in American universities, they could care less about a philosophy of life. And if you'd gone up, if I'd gone up to a professor and said, what's your philosophy of life? He probably would have giggled and said, well, we don't do that here. Uh, so we, we do technical stuff. Uh, yet I knew I wanted to be a philosopher. So I decided, well, then I'm going to have to put this, this other thing, this philosophy of life thing on a back burner and do the kinds of technical stuff that will uh, get me a job and then will get me a tenure within, within that job. Um, so, uh, as a result of writing uh, this book, uh, I looked at, started looking. You know, I'd circled back to my senior year in high school 
and was actively thinking about uh, advice that's been given, wisdom that's been offered on how to live well. Uh, Zen Buddhism was, as I said, my primary candidate. And I realized that Zen Buddhism, to do it uh, the right way, you needed to do lots of meditation, which I have nothing against and have tried uh, myself. And that, depending on which form you're doing, you might have your moment of enlightenment uh, the very first time you sit down to meditate, or it could take decades for you to have that moment. Uh, and what were they aiming at? They were aiming at a tranquility, a life that was relatively, that had relatively few negative emotions, mm. like anger and anxiety uh, and envy. And was full of positive emotions, uh, was full of delight, was full of a capacity for a sense of awe, was full of joy. Uh, but um, in the process of doing my research, I stumbled across the Stoics and realized, oh, they did more than logic. How about that? Oh, they had a philosophy of life that's very heavily based on psychological insights. So they would have been the premier psychologists of the first century AD. And it dawned on me they were aiming at the same target as um, the Zen Buddhists were, but just had a much more, um, much more friendly approach to it. So uh, to find out whether Zen Buddhism is going to work for you, you need to devote at least a year of your life and maybe longer mm -hmm to doing it. Uh, and my standard sales pitches, I say on a good three-day weekend, you know, that's Saturday and Sunday and Monday off work on a good three-day weekend, you can learn enough about Stoicism and practice the Stoic psychological techniques. So they aren't deep and profound and mysterious. You know, I, I can tell you, you know, in three minutes what negative visualization is about. That's one of the classic techniques they use. But you can find out enough Number one, to know, to have a good idea what Stoicism is about. And number two, you will sense whether you can put its techniques to work in your life. Uh, and so I was, I was sold, you know. I thought, well, this is really neat. Now, that book that resulted from that is called On Desire, Why We Want What We Want. And I also talk about uh, religions and what they say about um, having a good life. And I talk about the psychology that lurks behind it and the evolution that, uh, of the human brain that, works, that lurks behind that psychology. So I came out, I published that, and, and indeed it did, did uh, it was published by Oxford University and pre uh, Press. So uh, scholarly eyebrows were raised as a result. So it, it, it achieved that end. Uh, but then I realized this stoicism is just such wonderful stuff that I've got to share it with the world. And so I wrote what um, turned out to be, was titled um, Guide to the Good Life, the Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. And uh, Oxford University Press uh, agreed to publish it. And I thought I was pulling over a fast one on them. Hmm. I thought, yeah, this is stoicism and it's just not a very popular kind of philosophy. So it might sell a dozen copies and my friends will buy half of those and they might or might not read them. So I had very low expectations, uh, but it turns out that uh, Guide to the Good Life has what in the publishing industry is called legs. It continues to sell very well uh, yeah. and it was published uh, 12 years ago and it's still in hardback. Uh, so uh, 
So uh, that's the amazing thing. I got in on the ground floor of what turns out to have been a Stoic Renaissance. Um, so that's how the book came to be, uh, be written. You mentioned the relationship between Buddhism, that kind of a mindfulness, the meditation mindfulness and Stoicism. And it sounds like one of the distinctions you're making is that Stoicism, as we were talking just before we recorded, it's practical and sort of immediate. You can take steps toward a more stoic life immediately. You don't, you don't have to wait for a year and be able to understand that you're practicing stoicism. You could just be doing it. What yeah, it's, it's, it, you can test drive it very quickly. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, I, no, first of all, I'm not putting down Zen Buddhism. I'm saying in mm -hmm. my own life, it turned out to be um, the better choice. The two sure. are utterly compatible. So you can be both a Zen Buddhist and you can put uh, stoic psychological techniques um, to work in your own life. So you can, you can have it both ways. Is it I different also, means to the same end? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, what is the end? The end is having a good life. And what are the characteristics of a good life? Uh, and it's a, uh, not a great word to use, but tranquility is mm. the one that they agreed on. See, that was what shocked me is that they both had the same target. They just had different strategies for getting to that target. Uh, strat uh, and what is tranquility? It's the relative absence of negative emotions in your life and the presence of these positive emotions. So they, Stoics, you know, there's this, there's this uh, caricature that a Stoic is just a person who's glum and grim and just stands there and takes what life uh, throws his way. Whereas in fact, the ancient Stoics are described as cheerful individuals. There's a bit of, bit of a paradox there. But one thing Stoicism does is it takes whatever life you happen to be living and it encourages you to embrace and savor that life. And it's got certain psychological kinds of uh, strategies that, it, uh, that it, it accomplishes that with. Sounds like stoicism meets you where you are. Yes, um, and says wherever you are, you know what, you're, you're lucky. Now, there are a whole bunch mm -hmm. of people who deny that, and they'll immediately sort of say, no, no, you know, my job, my life is miserable. Um, but the Stoics will point out, however miserable you think you are, it could be much, much worse, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, oh, by the way, uh, you're living the dream world of your great, great, great grandparents. If you could For bring sure. them forth in time and they could see what you've got, they would assume that you had died and made it into heaven because look around you, you have an indoor environment, it's clean, you have antibiotics, you have x-rays and MRI machines. You have in your pocket a device with which you can order pizza in Hong Kong right here on the spot and see the face of the person you're ordering. Now, it'd be a pointless thing to do and the pizza would be really cold and probably moldy by the time it got to you, but just imagine the impact it would have on them. And, uh, you know, our um, descendants, um, four generations in the future might look at back at us and say the poor bastards. Yeah. And then they start listing all the things they have that we don't have. I don't know what those are because they haven't been invented yet. Um, but, uh, but it's an interesting thing. So, 
some people are happy, some people are miserable. Uh, and the Stoics said a lot of the people who are miserable, it's self-inflicted misery. Yes, there is more that they could have, but they have a lot. And a lot of people will complain about that. Yeah, you know, it's just this kind of glum kind of thing. They'll say, no, no, I should be miserable. And the Stoics would say, no, the glass is half full. The glass isn't half empty, but you can choose to see it that way. Thank you for letting me interrupt the show. Real quick, I just want to thank everybody who currently subscribes to the podcast, who donates money to the podcast, and everyone who just listens actively to the podcast. And if you're a new listener, welcome aboard. Thank you for listening. Um, we're funded solely by donations. We have decided that even as we scale, if and when we scale even bigger, that we would not like to accept money from advertisers. But if we scale properly, that, that would mean that there's going to be a lot more time spent. So we do respect, value, appreciate any monetary donations you can give. First of all, if you want to contribute to the show, if you want to do more than just listen, and uh, you want to do something that will make a positive impact, can you rate us and or review us on your podcast app, specifically if you use the Apple or like iTunes podcast app? That will go a long way in helping us with favorability ratings and searchability. But if you want to make a contribution, you can go to paypal.me slash zeroads if you would like to make a one-time donation. And if you'd like to become a sustaining member of the show, please visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. And you can do it for as little as $2 a month. Again, that's patreon.com slash the social exchange. For as little as $2 a month, you get what all the other patrons get at a basic level, which is early access to all of our regularly scheduled podcasts. Um, you get all of the videos that we put out as well. You get early access and just access in general to the Life Process Program podcast, which is the other podcast that I put on, and it has most of my addiction-related work. And you'll also get Patreon-exclusive content because you are behind the paywall. And, of course, it will go a long way in supporting what we do as podcasters. So far, contributions, as little as they may seem, they're not. They're really actually quite significant. We were able to rent a space in order to do podcasts, hopefully when restrictions via the pandemic are lifted. That'll be a space that I can do in-person interviews. Um, we've managed to buy a lot of new recording gear, different mics, speakers, software for editing, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it makes it so that we're doing a cash-positive hobby. So, much appreciated. And I want to thank, by name, as I always do at this point in the show, all of my current patrons. Thank you to Stephen Rabinowitz, Jesse Dunleavy, Andrew Tatarski, Dean Lemire, Christy McPherson, Nunzio De Martino, Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris L., Leah Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Christopher Hanlon, Amore Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, Ann Earl, Inigo, John, Layla, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane, Trevor, and thank you to my family members who also contribute to my Patreon page. Thomas Rhodes, that's my father, Linda Rhodes, my mother, and my mother-in-law, Susan Matthew. You know you're doing it right when you have a good relationship with your mother-in-law. If you want to join this list of patrons, please visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. I will now release you if you promise to visit patreon.com slash the social exchange to my interview with Bill Irving. 
You talked about the caricature that is sort of portrayed as a stoic is a, an emotionless person, sort of like an autistic yeah. sort of a person, uh, no affect. And I, you know, to some extent, I see the, the purveyors of stoicism, at least, you know, if you turn on TV or YouTube or movies or things like that, which of course, maybe that's no good, uh, that's no good test for what a stoic is. Are that, they do seem to be that way. And I wonder if you think, is there anything to that? Is there anything about stoicism, you mentioned logic, that would attract people uh, of a certain kind of a temperament? You know, maybe it's not that stoicism itself leads to that sort of affect or emotionlessness, but maybe there's a certain kind of a person that's drawn to it. Or do you think it's really just as a mythology? Yeah, so I'll take that in two stages. Uh, first Thanks. of all, uh, in the dictionary, if you look up stoic, it, 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 has lowercase s stoic and it describes it as a person who's emotionless and who's mm. glum and group, all of those things. So if somebody was just casually heard about stoics and looked it up in the dictionary, that's what they would find. Uh, when I started writing about stoicism, I realized, oh, I've got that to deal with. And so what I did is uh, when I was talking about the ancient stoics, I would use an uppercase s and I explained to readers, you know, it's different. And oh, by the way, Epicureans, well, they weren't Epicureans in the lowercase e right. sense of the word. They weren't just partying all the time. Yeah. Uh, the skeptics weren't skeptics in the modern sense. The cynics weren't cynics in the modern sense. So uh, it's kind of a, a universal thing. We've taken these um, ancient philosophies and we've simplified them. Uh, and part of the reason we've simplified them was so we could just dismiss them. Uh, out of hand. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. So you asked about, um, let's see, what was the second part of the question? Remind me. I wondered if you thought there was any, I mean, if there was anything besides definitionally, if there's anything to that. Oh, okay. Theory. About the yeah. question, there are people, I call them congenital Stoics, who mm -hmm. just seem to figure it out on their own early on, they uh, are always seeing the bright side of things. They're just cheerful people. Um, and, and it really is an interesting question, and it would be a question for scientific study to decide, to, to, to determine, are there born Stoics? <clears throat> there are also people, um, so I don't have scientific research on this, but there are people who just seem to lean toward anxiety. You know, you, you yeah. put them somewhere and they'll find something to worry about. And there are people who you uh, put them somewhere and they'll say, isn't this grand? Um, now, I think a lot of people who are in the anxious camp maybe can't be completely cured of the anxiety. And in some cases, you know, it's a, it's a, a wiring issue and, and they do need uh, proper medical uh, attention and uh, perhaps medication of some kind. But um, just to remind people, um, I've had good luck with this. So sometimes people will approach me and tell me about something they're worried about. And there's one thing that the Stoics call the dichotomy of control. <clears throat> and the idea is that when you're thinking about your life, your choices, realize there are things in life you can control and things you can't control. And if you spend your time worrying about the things you can't control, you are just the biggest fool on the planet because you're making yourself miserable. Oh, and you can't control those things. They're either going to happen or not. But you do have considerable control over how you respond, both in, in physical terms and in emotional terms, to whatever it is. 
that happens. Uh, so I had somebody call me recently in the aftermath of the recent election, mm -hmm. just describing, you know, oh, it's so terrible and what can happen? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's awful and it could have disastrous consequences. And uh, so I just bit my lip for about 20 minutes of, of you know, the, this, this kind of outpour and then said, you know what? Uh, I'm looking outside my window right now. Mm. It's a blue sky October day. So or I guess it would have been an early November day. Uh, and it's it's reasonably warm. So um, I think I'm going to invite my wife to go out on a walk with me. And you know, all that other stuff, it's going to unwind one way or another. And time will tell. I can't control that. But I can control what I do with myself right now. And I have considerable control over my emotional response to all of this. And so people who do tend toward anxiety, a lot of times that logic will have at least a short-term impact on them. Uh, so what should you worry about? The Stoics said you should worry. What should you worry about? Well, things hmm. you have control over. You should plan for the future. You know, you should, you should do that sort of thing. Um, but only if you have control only if you can affect the outcome. So you're going on a long drive in the desert, check the gas gauge, right? Make sure you've got enough gas to, to get where you're going. So, but, but that isn't worry, that's planning. And that planning can be done with zero element of anxiety. You know, you're just sensibly saying, well, here's, here's what you do before a long drive in the desert. Is it ever possible, do you think, that someone gets so good at being reasoned and rational when it comes to what could be adverse events, that they actually don't adopt that emotional experience necessary to say, okay, next time I'm not gonna do this. I remember how angry it made me or I remember how devastated it made me. Yeah, any stoic is still a human being. And the interesting thing is uh, we have wiring. Uh, so to call it wiring is misleading because it isn't wires, but it's a nervous system. It's a nervous system that developed through a process of evolution. Uh, so if you go back and if you could visit your ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago, they would have had brains, but they would have been very primitive brains, primarily reflexive brains. Uh, you go back and visit your ancestors tens of millions of years ago, and you would notice the brains were different. They would have had an emotional component as well as the reflexive component. Uh, you go back and visit your ancestors um, 100 uh, 200,000 years ago. And the brain now would have a rational component. Now, the interesting thing is these co components didn't displace one another. So it isn't like the, the emotional uh, brain, the, the mammalian brain came along and displaced the reptilian brain. It just grew around it. And then when the rational brain came along, it just grew around and physically, I mean, grew around, but uh, grew around the emotional component. So uh, even though you're a rational being, you still have the reptilian component. You still have the emotional component. They're still there. And you have to deal with them, not only on a daily basis, but on a nightly basis as well. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, most people Everybody has dreams, but it's interesting. Some people can remember their dreams and some people can't. I've, uh, for a variety of reasons, entered a phase of my life where my, 
my dream life is as active <laughs> as it has ever been. Mm. And, uh, and then what happens is when you finally awake from your dream, then your rational brain gets to look at what's been going on while you've been sleeping. And it's the craziest stuff. And I remember always thinking, I got to remember this one, you know, so I can tell my wife in the morning and I <laughs> almost always forget, but it's crazy stuff. That's what your brain is, is capable of that dreamlike stuff. Now, uh, we talked before about Zen and, uh, you know, the, the meditation. Uh, if, even if you told me that you weren't going to become a Zen Buddhist, that you had zero interest in doing that, I would recommend that you attempt meditation at least once. And here's, uh, here's how it goes. Uh, you find a quiet place, relatively free of distractions. You sit down in a comfortable chair. You don't have to be on the floor, a comfortable chair. And now close your eyes and just let your mind go slack. In other words, stop having thoughts. Let it go free. And the striking thing, and it's a very, very important lesson for you to learn. The striking thing is you'll quickly discover how hard it is to do that yeah. because thoughts keep popping into your mind. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are thoughts about the past, about something mean somebody said, thoughts about the future. Hmm, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? And they just keep coming. And so what you can do now, again, if you have a a Zen teacher, a Zen master, they will say, okay, thoughts will appear. When they do, you dismiss them. You say, well, thank you, but I'm now going to go on. And you'll do that. In another 15 seconds, another thought will come in. So these are these deeper components of your mind, pushing thoughts into your conscious mind, just sticking them in there. And the interesting thing is we take ownership of them. We say, well, it's in my mind, so it must be my thought. It must be what I think. Yes. No, there are deeper components having those thoughts saying, oh, let's, let's see if we can get the rational brain to take ownership of this. And they stick it up into your, into your mind. And to a remarkable extent, your rational mind does take ownership and then uses all of its brain power, its massive brain power, to figure out clever ways to get your heart what it wants, to get your gut what it wants. Um, it's hijacked, in other words, by those. Um, that has been true for as long as there have been human beings. So you can take the most accomplished Stoic on the planet, and if he's honest, he's still got that to battle with every single day. And the amazing thing is you can take, focus your attention on one part of your Stoic practice and the other parts will decay. <laughs> And then pretty soon you realize, oh, I'm having an anxiety attack. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, so let's see, what, what do I need to do uh, to deal with that? So uh, it's the human condition. And, yes. uh, and stoicism is one way of responding to those circumstances. Let, let me build on that a little bit more. Uh, and, and so I've got a number of analogies I describe, but uh, imagine that uh, during uh, lockdown, you were uh, ended up with a roommate. Um, uh, and, and the roommate was not a terribly well-balanced human being. What he did is he liked to stay uh, back in the back bedroom of the house you were sharing with him and playing video games, who knows what, right? 
But then every few minutes he would come out and say, oh, here's something for you to worry about, you know, mm -hmm. and, and describe some, some catastrophic scenario and say, that's what you should think about because that could happen. And then he goes back, he plays some more video games and you're thinking, well, it could happen, but you know, it's unlikely to happen. And then he comes out again and he says, oh, here's something you should be mad about, right? Uh, and, and, and remember what that guy said last week? You should be mad about that guy. You should get revenge on that guy. And then he goes back to play more video games, whatever it is he's doing back there. Uh, by the third day of lockdown, you'd want to kill this guy, right? <laughs> Throw him out, silence him, do something to stop him from doing this to you. But of course you can't because that's murder and you're locked down, you're stuck with him. So your situation in real life is even worse than that because you are trapped inside your skull with two very unpleasant skull mates. One is this reptilian brain, one is this emotional brain, and what they're going to do is they're back there and they just do whatever it is they do when they're not with you, and then they come up with something to worry about, something to be angry about, and then they try, they, they tell you about it. They and gaslight they you and make you think you came up with it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, it's, and you'll take ownership. You'll think, yeah. well, if they think that, it must be what I think, uh, and, and that's the human situation. Uh, so uh, a rational person, number one, is going to realize that. And a lot of people don't. They just say, here's what I think. Well, but why do you think it? And number two is you're going to think, is there a way I can shut them up? Or better still, is there a way I can harness them and make them work for me? I can take that passion that they've got and use it for what I know rationally to, be, uh, to achieve good goals. So I, I like the way that you bring in evolution into the conversation and the explanation because whereas a lot of people who do that can become tautological or they can use it as some sort of a sleight of hand to talk about something mystical or something like that, what you're saying, I'm going to try to, to give a reflection of what you're saying, is that you know, there are things over which we have no control. They're just yep. sort of ingrained in us. We have a propensity for sex because if we enjoy sex we'll have more sex we'll we'll pass on our genes or we have uh, uh certain desires and certain things that we try to avoid that maybe don't make sense anymore they make sense evolutionarily yep. but there's no there's no good sense all the time that all of these desires all these built-in feelings are actually what are going to lead us to a good life we actually want to be able to uh, take our own perspectives or uh, control of these things. And to that end, that's the yeah. kind of free will that we care about and which stoicism is all about. Yeah. So our ancestors evolved on the savannas of Africa. They evolved to acquire uh, traits that would allow you to survive and reproduce on the savannas of Africa 100,000 years ago. <laughs> we are in a dramatically different environment. You know, and another thing you'll find if you, if you meditate is uh, how hard it is to stay in the moment. Because yes. when you do have these intrusive thoughts, they'll come in two different categories. One will be thoughts about the past. Somebody said something to make you angry. Uh, some will be thoughts about the future. What am I going to have for dinner? But there will be very few that are just you in the moment now, just appreciating this very moment and realizing 
that there will likely come a time in your life when you will wish you could come back to this very moment. Okay, so you and I are here talking on the computer, having a wonderful conversation, right? Uh, you know, if you live long enough, and if I live long enough, there will be a time we be old men in a nursing home. And we, you know, we'll be in the back corner of the main room and they'll be playing the TV too loud with old movies that they think we'll enjoy and we will wish. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could be back, mm. right, to uh, November of 2020, having this conversation? Now, think about your evolutionary ancestors. The ones who didn't like sex didn't go on, didn't become your ancestors. They didn't have kids, right? The ones who loved it, who thought it was just the best thing ever. They had kids and you're descended from them. Uh, same thing. Think about uh, your evolutionary ancestors. Let's pick one and let's call him Dave just to have a name to throw around. Uh, Dave uh, was really good at staying in the moment. You know, everybody else was thinking about what things had done, what bad things people had done uh, to them, what good things people had done for them in the past, thinking about where their next meal was coming from. Dave was a Zen kind of guy, right? Savannahs of Africa, 100,000 years ago. He would just sit there on a rock and he would be in the moment and he would think about, all of this is wonderful. All of this is grand. I'm so appreciative of all of this. And Dave would suffer one of two fates. One is a lion would come up and eat him. Or second, he wouldn't have planned for his dinner that night and he would starve to death. Okay. Back then, you don't want to be someone gazing at a sunset. You, you don't want to be Zen back then. <laughs> Zen did not did not pay. Now, but we're in a radically different environment where you do want to take steps. Wouldn't it be neat to be able to live in the moment? Wouldn't it be neat to be able to uh, turn off those components of your brain at least for a while and live the life of your own choosing? Live the life that you, the rational you, has decided is going to be the best life, meaning very few negative emotions, lots and lots of positive emotions. Can, can you give a little bit of a, I don't know, a 10,000 foot view, a 101 guide about what we're really talking about here? And I, I would like to, I'd like to sort of get at why is stoicism going to lead to a good life? And conversely, is not practicing or stoicism or being stoic going to lead to some sort of a bad life or, or lesser life? Uh, if you don't like negative emotions, and you shouldn't, that's why they're negative, uh, emotions like anger, emotions like envy, uh, anxiety, regret, right? If you don't like those emotions and you realize the impact they have on your life, then you're going to want to have ways of dealing with those emotions, ways of preventing them from happening, or ways of harnessing them and making them uh, work for you. And, uh, you know, if you think about your life, you realize that your life, if you could somehow get rid of the negative emotions, would be a much, much better life, much more, uh, much more enjoyable. Um, because when you experience a setback in life, and this is, um, so my most recent book is titled uh, The Stoic Challenge, uh, came out about a year ago, but it's kind of like applied um, stoicism, and it's applied to life setbacks. 
So if you're a functioning human being, you will uh, experience uh, setbacks in the course of a day. Some will be tiny setbacks, like you notice your shoes untied. Some will be major setbacks, like you slip on some wet leaves and break your leg. And some will be really, really big setbacks. Your doctor looks into your eyes and says with a sad look on your face, says the phrase, inoperable brain cancer. The interesting question is if you start looking at these setbacks in your life, the setbacks you experience, you realize that what hurts you the most is not the setback itself, but your emotional response to the setback. So the analogy I use, it's like having a, a water pipe burst in your house. The pipe isn't your biggest problem. The pipe you can fix for a few hundred dollars or a plumber can fix for a few hundred dollars in a half hour. Although I've known a lot of plumbers who would turn it into a two hour job and bill you accordingly, but it could be fixed in a half hour for a few hundred uh, dollars. That's not your problem. Your problem is all the water released by the burst pipe. And if that uh, burst pipe is in a second floor bathroom, it's very likely that the first floor ceiling will ultimately collapse and wet uh, the furniture underneath it. And it turns into a major catastrophe. So when you have life setbacks, you realize the setback itself is interesting. But what makes it bad is all of the emotions that flood out in the aftermath of the setback. So uh, one of the Stoic strategies was um, you turn it, you reframe the setback. You take what looks like a setback and you find a different way of uh, dealing with it. So for instance, um, one is a comedic setback. If somebody insults you, it's likely to trigger anger in you. Anger is a negative emotion. And not just anger on the spot, but it's anger that can last for decades. I've known people in nursing homes who couldn't remember what year it was, but could tell you in great detail about something somebody had said decades before that still was capable of making them angry. So... Um, we have, we have that particular issue, but the, the Stoics said what we can do is put it into a comedic frame when somebody insults us. If we very quickly turn it into a joke, then, um, then the interesting thing is we won't experience anger. And also, as, uh, as, as insults go, it's, it's one of the most effective possible insults, replies yeah. to an insult. <laughs> Because somebody's going to think, I hit him with my best blow and he laughed it off and he's going to look like a fool. <clears throat> so it works at multiple levels. Um, another stoic strategy is what I call the stoic test strategy. So when we experience a setback, um, what, we, what we do is we, we respond by, by saying, um, what, what's really going on is there are these imaginary stoic gods and, they, and they're the ones behind these setbacks. If a human being is involved, that human being is merely the lackey of these stoic gods. And why do they set us back? Is it to punish us? No, it's to make us stronger. It's to make us more resilient. It's to increase our ability to bounce back from life setbacks. So, um, and then what you do after that is you say, okay, so it's a test. How do I pass the test? You gotta do two things. You gotta find a workaround for the setback. And second thing is you got to stay calm, cool, and collected while doing so.
And it is an interesting strategy. It's an effective strategy. I routinely now, when uh, there's a setback, most of them are, are little setbacks, they're bigger setbacks. My instinctive response is to look upward, which is where I imagine these imaginary stoic gods to exist and say, oh, this is an interesting test. When, um, when we had the first lockdown, that was my response. You know, I don't know what other people were thinking, but I was thinking, oh, oh, this is a chance to show my stoic stuff. So what do I have to do? I have to find a way to make it work in my life. And I was teaching at that time. And this was on a Wednesday night. They said uh, no more in class or maybe Tuesday night. They said no more in class teaching. By Monday, you better know how to teach online, right? So that's something you can complain and you can bitch and moan about. Or you can say, okay, game on. This is a challenge. And I'm going to rise to this challenge. And I'm going to show the kind of stuff I'm, I'm made of. Um, but that was the instinctive response. And a very healthy response. Because I didn't find myself getting full of dread. I hear people who are who are uh who you know are for whom the lockdown is just this horrible experience it's an unpleasant experience but it could be so much worse um so that's that's an interesting thing about stoicism it, it one of the things it teaches you is life's going to throw stuff at you you might maybe have minimal control over that but you have control over how you frame it and the psychological, it's like a painting, you know, somebody can give you a painting and if you put it in an ugly frame, it's going to be an ugly painting. And if you put it in the right frame, though, it can be a beautiful painting. Um, and the choice is yours. So you should, you should do what, uh, what you can. Epictetus was the first uh, reading that I did that was, that got me thinking about perspectives that way. The, <clears throat> the whole idea that, uh, events don't cause the stress or the demise, but it's the, the perspective you take on events. Yes. Um, a profound psychological insight. And once you hear it, it's like, well, duh, yeah. Except yeah. look at all the people around you who haven't had that insight on their own. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know that this, this is what, if this was you talking about it, and if it is, whether it was you speaking it or that I read it, but in any case, um, it hit me, the analogy worked really well, at least for me to be able to explain it to somebody else. Like if you're, um, if you're lifting weights and you feel a pain when you're lifting, you're kind of excited because it means it was a good workout. And you could imagine feeling the same pain and that would be tantamount to, you know, a terminal diagnosis or something or, or a heart attack or something. So the perspective you take on the, the exact same sensation matters yeah. there, whether you're you know, looking forward, prospectively thinking, oh, what a great day it's been, or whether you're thinking, this is it, I better shut everything down and shut my brain down. I don't think I've used that exact analogy, but I have a parallel uh, one that in the, in the book, uh, The Stoic Challenge, I give, and that is you're running across a grassy field and you hear footsteps behind you and somebody tackles you and throws you to the mm -hmm. ground. Uh, you're going to be traumatized. You're going to call the police. You're going to be complaining. You might in the future have anxieties, but... Suppose that happens, you're running across the field, but it's in the midst of a football game and you hear footsteps behind you, somebody tackles you down. You might jump up and do one of those crazy little dances football players do because you gained eight, eight yards and isn't that wonderful? And yet the same physical sensation 
either way, but you have it in a different frame. Much and better. the way you frame it, yeah. But now here's here's another uh, thing. So this is something I've been experimenting with. Um, two days ago, I had uh, Mo's surgery. So there was this uh, sort of growth uh, on my on the top of my head, and uh, I've had I've had one of these before. Um, and I, so I kind of know what the, the deal is. You go in, they, they cut, uh, then you go out and sit in your car. Back in the good old days, I used to be able to sit in the uh, waiting room, but you don't want to do that anymore. And then uh, they, they look at it in a microscope and they either got it or they didn't. But anyway, it starts out, they're going to do surgery on you and you're wide awake. So uh, they, they first are going to inject you with the anesthetic. And uh, so this is my, my new routine. Uh, the doctor says, this is going to sting. And I always reply, no, it isn't. <laughs> and I feel it going in. And, uh, and yes, there is sensation. But, um, you know, it's up to you. Is this pain? Is this pain that I should be, I should be worried about? Or, or should I just sit there and watch, watch it happen? Um, similar thing. Uh, so I, I do, uh, I'm uh, somewhat athletic, uh, you know, for an old guy. Uh, so I, I'm a competitive uh, rower. That's uh, rowing in a skull. Those are those uh, crazy fast, but crazy tippy uh, little boats. <laughs> and <clears throat> we do interval training. And uh, also, although I haven't been doing it since uh, pandemic started, lift weights. And uh, so I'll be talking with what I call a normal person, somebody who isn't doing this kind of intense uh, training. And, you know, I'll hear them talk about their aches and pains. And I'll realize that my body is filled with aches and pains. It's just background, you know. And, yeah, I can focus on it and I can think about it or I can just think, well, you know, given the goals I've got, this is kind of a byproduct of, of uh, trying to achieve those goals. And that's okay. But it's the same sensation. And, you know, it's up to you what frame you're going to put it in. Uh, so it can be, oh, I'm getting old and I've got aches and pains. Or it can be, well, actually, I'm training for a competitive event. And this is a byproduct of that. Same sensation, but different emotional uh, interpretation, different perspective on it, as you put it. Given that we're just playing... <clears throat> Plagues might be a perspective that you, a stoic wouldn't want to take, but filled with these kinds of experiences that that could be misleading. I mean, or mis, we're misleading ourselves all of the time. If you're not well practiced, uh, I can imagine just so many different things happening in your mind. Uh, you know, you're creating in a self fulfilling way these these patterns for yourself, or you're creating pain for yourself, or maybe there wouldn't have been if you took a different perspective. And I always wonder to what extent really things are a mindset it sounds silly but i wonder to what extent being sick is a mindset i know that it's not all or nothing but sometimes i think about when i have a cold and i know that other people have colds could i have prevented this thing from actually happening longer or suffering from it so much if i from the onset took it for what it was was able to sort of center myself uh do you have do you have these ideas about I mean, I mentioned Ellen Langer before, and she wanted to do studies about, you know, she does this reverse aging study where she takes 80-year-olds to this place and that shows them all these things from, you know, their whole lifestyle is like um, 
scenery from their past, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. You might be familiar with it. Um, and they start moving, you know, it's like literally and figuratively enlivening, you know, talking positive language, yep. take away walkers and things like that. Do you have thoughts about this or ideas about how far a stoic mindset can take you toward a good life relative to just someone who completely never practices and perhaps falls victim to these uh, patterns of thought? Yeah. So first of all, if you're sick, you're sick. If you're old, you're old. Uh, I mean, that's just a physical uh, fact. But the interesting yeah. thing is how you respond to being sick and how you respond to being old. Um, so for instance, responding to being old, um, I try to take care of myself, but I, I know it's changed. The whole game is changing. So uh, as a competitive rower, I can compare <laughs> my times to times of years gone by. I keep records of this and you can see. Oh, and even if you didn't do that, they have, uh, they have an age handicap, which is based on a massive body of data. And you can see for each year older uh, I get, I'm going to get X amount slower in uh, if I do the exact same thing as I... I did uh, the year before. Uh, my memory, I know, is uh, is starting to go. You go through all of these different things, um, but one thing that can keep you um, kind of chipper, despite all of this, uh, I call it the last time meditation, and that is when you're doing something, and you're an old guy, and you're doing it, and you're sort of complaining that you have to be doing it. My favorite example is mowing the lawn. So I'm still mowing the lawn. Uh, and you're out there on a hot summer day, and then you realize, you know what? There will be a last time I mow the lawn. There will be. It isn't a theoretical thing. There will also be the last time I kiss my wife, the last breath I take, there will be a last. So, um, so it, it puts a different frame on it, you know? So I'm out there doing it, an old guy pushing this mower around in the hot sun, and then you think, uh, but you know what? This could be the last time. And a lot of people would say, that's a really depressing thought to have. Well, it can have that effect, but it can have just the opposite effect. And that is while I'm having this experience, I'm going to savor it. Yes. I'm going to soak it up. Uh, had an experience. Uh, so during lockdown, um, uh, my wife and I decided to go on a, on a, on a, well, we took a lot of walks that became a, a part of our exercise. Uh, load bearing, whereas uh, uh, exercise, whereas rowing, you're, you're on your butt. So it isn't mm. uh, 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 load bearing. So children were also locked down. A lot of them headed for the sidewalks in front of their house with chalk and we're walking along and uh, we uh, encountered uh, hopscotch squares. If you, you, you must've, played hopscotch at yeah. some point when you were a kid. So with chalk, they had made these squares and it dawned on me that, uh, that there actually had been a last time I played hopscotch. It was perhaps when I was eight years old, seven years old, uh, a young kid. And so here, nobody around, I had this hopscotch uh, uh, court or whatever they call it uh, set out before me. So I started hopping. <laughs> I, I made it four squares before I became dangerously off balance. And instead of risking a trip to the emergency room, I, I quit. But, you know, the interesting thing is I advanced the last time I did it by 60 years, right? 60 mm. plus years. And, you know, so you can approach it in that frame of mind where you're losing your abilities 
And yet you realize, but I've still got them. And you know what? While I've still got them, I should take full advantage, knowing that they're going to go. And the knowledge that they're going to go actually makes it that much sweeter on experience. Uh, when you're sick, uh, you can focus on, uh, uh, on how sick you are. And you can focus also on um, the bright spots, the bright spots where you find them. Uh, so I was in the hospital. I was supposed to go in in and out surgery in a day, and I ended up in the hospital for a week. Uh, and um, it became my uh, self-appointed task to tell whatever jokes I could to the people I encountered, the medical people, uh, to the people who visited me, because uh, I was not going to let this. I was not going to play the role of victim, right? Yeah, I, I had something going on, but I was going to turn it into as big a joke as I could. And that uh, had a profound effect on just my own take on it. I was happy to get out at the end. But, you know, I don't look back and say, what a, what a terrible time that was. Well, it was an interesting time, and uh, I, I somehow benefited from it. Uh, but that's the, the weird thing. So stoicism uh, changes your perspective, not just on ind individual things in life, but on life itself. So you take a much longer term view. I, I think you were being pleasant in your sort of dystopian sounding uh, example that you gave where people say, well, that's depressing. And you say, actually, it could be quite enlivening. Um, uh, this works for me and it would be the opposite for my wife. So I'll tell you what I do, my morning routine now, and I'll, I'll tell you why it wouldn't work for her and see if you have okay. a suggestion. So at 4.30 in the morning is when I usually wake up, but I know there's nothing inherently stoic about that. It just happens to be when I can control my When, when do you go to bed? Uh, about nine o'clock. Okay. It, it works for me, at least for now. I, I used to be a crazy early riser, like 2 a.m. Uh, now oh, wow. I, I go to bed at eight, Without fail, you know, if I'm standing up, I'll fall asleep. So I might as well lie down. And then I try to get seven and a half or eight hours. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, so anyway, you, sorry for the interruption. So you wake no, that's, up. That's great. Uh, so I have um, just, it seems pretty naturally occurring that the way that I deal with stress, if, I, if I'm really not being rational about it, is I'm, a, I'm a, a very much a fight in the fight, flight, freeze even with like if we've my wife and I have thought people are breaking into the house before and I'll, I'll without thinking about it run to the door as though I were going to do something about it if someone had a gunner so I get angry very easily frustrated angry if I, something little like I lose my keys and I've noticed even in the two years that I have a two-year-old daughter the two years that my kid has been born that more than ever even though I've been doing a lot of work on that I really want to control that and one of the ways that has really helped is I get up in the morning and I think about the terrible things that could happen to my wife and to my child, yep. the two things I treasure most. And I know this won't be new to you. And, you know, like really horrible. I, I really leave myself in that thought experiment, how I would be reacting to it. And in some sense, I would I think about how tragic it would be. So I'm thankful for what I have. And it makes me so much less likely when an event occurs to act in anger because I'm too busy thinking about, how amazing it is, how awe-inspiring it is that I get to be with these two. And then I also think about how I would deal with it if it really did happen. Yep. My wife thinks that's crazy because her mind always goes to worst case scenarios 
And that's why she's anxious about this. Yeah. So what, what do you think would be the equivalent sort of exercise that someone like my wife could do? Because, you know, it, she takes immediately goes to the worst case scenario and then sort of freezes up because she's thinking about it. I never go to the worst case scenario. I'm sort of just battling with whatever's in the moment if I'm not thoughtful and rational about it. So that kind of exercise works for me. Well, for starters, your wife sounds like my wife. So we, 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 <laughs> we, have, uh, we have that in common. The whole anger thing. <clears throat> um, uh, Seneca, the Roman Stoic, has a very a wonderful essay on anger. Uh, when I read that essay, I was in a doctor's office. They left me waiting for an hour and a half before I finally got called in. But because I was thinking about anger, I couldn't get angry. Mm. Now, in uh, the latest book, The Stoic Challenge, um, I describe what I call the five-second rule. So the conventional rule is about dropping food on the floor. You know, you, you pick it up within five seconds. Well, okay, there is no medical authority that's tested that. So uh, who knows whether that works. But my theory about anger is when something bad happens to you, um, you've got to nip it in the bud. Uh, because once anger catches fire, it can burst into flames very quickly. And even if it doesn't burst into flames, it can smolder. And then when you're in bed, just about to drift off, boom, there it bursts into flames and it can keep you up all night. I know that from personal experience. Um, so what you got to do is do it quickly. And what you do is sidetrack the anger. So instead of thinking of it as, damn it, where are my keys? Where are my car keys? You think, oh, this is a really like first grade level stoic test. <laughs> and the stoic gods are going to see whether I'm going to lose my anger or not, or whether I'm just going to say, you know, this is nothing. Life is too short. And if you do that, and it's an interesting thing, and you might be skeptical about it, but hey, give it a try. Give it a try and see if it, if it works, because I know for me it works wonderfully. You're going to show these Stoic gods, imaginary Stoic gods, who's in charge here. Yeah, they can test you with these little games. You're above that. Uh, also, realize that your daughter is learning from you your examples. And, uh, you know, the, the whole anger thing, uh, I understand it because I experienced it. I had an unfortunate angry outburst about a week ago. Uh, and uh, so what do you do then? Well, you contemplate it. You think about it. Okay, so what went through my mind? What can I do to prevent that from happening again? Um, so uh, even though I've been a practicing Stoic for like 15 years, uh, it's still possible. And anger is just it's insidious stuff. Nip it in the bud. Don't let it burst out. As soon as you realize that you, you're in some sort of situation that could provoke anger, you respond by turning it into something else. It's a game between you and the gods. You have mentioned, I mean, maybe even in this talk, really, that everything that you enjoy eventually there's going to be an end to it. There's going to be a time when you don't get to experience that thing that you enjoy. Everything, um, absolutely everything. That's true. Even if, even if uh, you get it for your entire life and you are lucky enough to experience something enjoyable your whole life, then death eventually makes you part with that thing. Yep. How do you contend with that? And what are, how do you think about things like that? So, um, I guess the way I've thought about it and maybe why I, uh, 
you know, I was okay during this whole quarantine and shutdown too, is that I, I tend to be extremely grateful and sort of wondrous. I look around a lot and think, wow, is this really happening? This is amazing. And so, whereas I am also angry a lot of the time for no good reason, if I'm not careful, I do have a sense of wonder about me. And I think this is, this sort of happens naturally to me. I, I notice that I have things that I'm definitely not going to have forever. Um, I, people have been less fortunate because they don't, they don't really have that, that innate sense of looking around wondrously at everything. Uh, how do you start getting your foot in the door of practicing that sort of a mindset? Uh, negative visualization is a very easy to learn, easy to practice uh, technique. Uh, it's one of the basic, uh, there are three or four basic techniques of uh, basic stoic psychological strategies. So to do negative visualization, you take something in um, life that you appreciate and are probably taking for granted, I should add, but something that you appreciate. And then you give yourself a few moments to imagine it being absent from your life. So you mentioned your daughter, you mentioned your child. You take a few moments to imagine it's, you know, things happen in life and, uh, and then suddenly they're, they're, they're gone. And you don't dwell on it because that would be a recipe for a miserable existence. You allow yourself to have a flickering thought about it. Maybe you fill it in with a little bit of visualization. You know, you're getting the phone call from the police saying there's been an accident. Um, then, enough. You're done. You go on with life as normal. And uh, if you're like me, and if you're like people I've talked to, you will find the next time you encounter that person, you will have a different connection with them. You will be so happy that they're still present in your life. Uh, and then the, the running joke is, uh, my wife knows when I've been doing this because she'll hear me uh, middle of the afternoon yell out from uh, my, my back office here at home. She'll uh, hear me yell out, thanks for existing. And she'll know, <laughs> oh, he's, he's been engaging in, in negative visualization. And it's a, a, a profound impact it can have. And it's so simple to do. And it's like a, a lotion you get from your doctor that says apply as needed. So uh, guess what? You will, in a short period of time, start taking things for granted again because you're a human. That's how we are. Uh, so you, you, uh, you just do it again. The pandemic, one strange silver lining is that it's made us appreciative of all the things we used to have. You know, those restaurants, theater, handshakes, hugs, you name it. We yeah. took it all for granted. And then it was snatched away. So if we ever get it back, for a time at least, we will say, oh, this is great. But then we'll start taking it for granted again. A negative visualization, um, you don't actually lose the thing. That's the beautiful thing. So you don't have to lose it in order to regain your gratitude. It's just this mental little trick you do that will regain uh, your gratitude for a while. And then when it fades again, because it will, then you do it again. So it's a, a beautiful little trick. Uh, you know, and whereas meditation, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do and it's frustrating to do because you, you, you can't do what you're trying to do. This is easy. Uh, you've just learned how to do it right? And the listeners mm -hmm. have just learned basics, how to do it. So it's not deep and mysterious. You know, you don't have to go visit a guru on a mountaintop in right. order to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can test drive it, right? 
give it a try and see if it has an impact. Um, and there's lots of things you can negatively visualize about uh, people you love, your friends, you know, friendships can end, your job, uh, your house. Houses do get destroyed by a variety of things. And then you realize, geez, I am one of the luckiest people on the planet to have all of this stuff I have. Uh, and suddenly, the world that you were taking for granted becomes a world that you are embracing. And it's a profound change. This is a really perfect segue. I help run an addiction program. And actually, we're now it's an online addiction program. It takes you through different cognitive behavioral therapeutic okay. modules. Okay. And, uh, you know, one of the reports, people get to write down their answers to these questions, sort of self-reflection questions about values, motivation, who they are, what they're addicted to. And our briefly, our definition is that addiction is a relationship that somebody forms with an involvement or a substance or a person that they sort of become wedded to and, and it's causing net destruction in their life. And for some reason they clutch it because it also gives them some illusory kind of gratification. When people start talking about these things and talking about themselves, which maybe they've never done before, answering very simple questions about themselves, why do you think people who are, um, what does addiction mean to you? What are the negative consequences people ensue who have addictions? Why do you think people tolerate these consequences? And they'll answer these questions. And just three little questions for the first time, they're saying, you know, I've never thought about it this way. It seems so stupid, but you know, now that I've just spoken about it a little bit, well, what they're doing, even if it's a drug or even if it's alcohol, is they're kind of doing what you're talking about. They're saying, this is a relationship with something that I have that is, for some reason, I'm thinking it's load bearing. If I don't have this, this drug, or if I don't have alcohol at this certain time, then things are going to fall apart. And then maybe it's possible that, I won't have these things sometimes. And then what will I do? And what could life be like? They move their focus somewhere else. All of that to say, do you see a relationship? And have you experienced one? Talk to people in the field of addiction. And you see a relationship between stoicism and addiction the way I, I definitely see that there is one. Yeah. Um, so first of all, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy that you mentioned, is very mm -hmm. closely connected with um, stoicism. Uh, has stoic roots, as it were, and yes. I'll I'll talk to people, and people will will tell me things that are uh, troubling them. But there are cases where it's clear I would be in over my head that the person uh, needs professional help in some sense. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my 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 standard response is: Have you ever given uh, cognitive behavioral therapy a try? Because it's a talking therapy, and it seems to have a, a very, very strong track record uh, with it. As far as addictions go, it's interesting. So I encountered these way back when I wrote the book on desire. Uh, so uh, your program, so some things feel good and some things feel bad, and it helped your ancestors survive, uh, not only on the savannas of Africa, but long before. Think of sex didn't feel good. Or think if uh, pregnancy was the opposite way. Uh, you had to suffer the worst pain a woman can suffer, and nine months later, you might get to experience an orgasm. Mm -hmm. You know, women would then say, "No way, I'm dead." Right. <laughs> but turn the, the time frame around, and it becomes an interestingly uh, attractive possibility. So, unfortunately, there are certain substances that can hijack, that can take advantage of the circuitry, the pain 
and pleasure circuitry. So uh, for instance, dopamine is the feel good uh, neurotransmitter. It's, it's made by your, your, your brain in order to reward you, but there are drugs, unfortunately, that can uh, release it. And so uh, what we're doing is we're hijacking our wiring, our evolutionary uh, wiring for feeling good and feeling bad. And these drugs are, uh, are insidious because you need more and more as time goes by. Uh, so rationally, you should not use it once. That's the rational thing to do. You should realize there's the risk there. And you should say, you know what? I'm not going to do this. If somebody said to me, you can have all the cocaine you want, lifetime supply, I'd say, nope. If someone said to me, uh, okay, we're going to force you to use this stuff, I would say, okay, I got a gun. You just try, right? That's the rational approach. Unfortunately, we live in a world where people have friends who use it. Otherwise, it would not occur to them. You know, the Indians, the American Indians, the Native Americans, proud, proud, strong people, and then along comes alcohol and uh, with devastating effect. Oh, and also smallpox, you name the other things uh, we, we brought. And so the, the trick is don't even try. Don't even try because you don't know whether you're in the category that's going to end up addicted or you're going to end up the casual drinker. But we're surrounded by people who are seem to be having great fun. And we want to be part of that fun. And we want to be liked by them. But that's all kind of one way of thinking because, okay, that's uh, the advice up front. But what's the advice in the back when you did try and it turns out that it for you was an addictive uh, substance? Um, it's really tough because uh, a, 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 an effective drug, uh, you'll feel really good if you use it. And then that's the downside is after a while, you'll start feeling really, really bad if you don't. And then you're working for the drug. It's hijacked your emotions. It's hijacked your reflexes. It's hijacked your, uh, your higher brain, your higher brain, which could be used to write physics and novels and poems is instead uh, reduced to figuring out where you're going to get your next uh, hit. Uh, and, uh, and, and what a sad waste of a, of a human life that, that all of that potential could end up uh, that way. Um, so I don't know if I have any uh, profound insights into how to deal with that. I know it's a really tough thing. I've heard good things about 12-step programs and I've heard you know uh, other claims about that. Um, but uh, it is it is really tough. And yet there are success stories. Uh, and you know the, the old saying of take it one day at a time. Uh, I guess that's what a Stoic would say about any challenge. Take a big challenge and break it into smaller, easier to do challenges. Uh, and then just take it one, one hurdle at a time. And you'd be surprised where you end up. I'm surprised that a guy like you who would say that no, hey, this is going to sting, and you would say, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, could you use the same? Could you use the same thought process to say, you know, this drug's going to be addictive? No, it's not. Except it's going, it's going flying in under the radar. You know, mm. your your rational brain is just out of uh, out of the picture, uh, and so what it's doing is it's triggering. Think about. Um, the feeling you get if you worked really hard training to be a basketball player and then you shoot 
the winning basket in overtime in the state championship game, right? Think about that feeling. Okay, two ways to get it. You can work really, really hard, practice, so on, or you can take a drug. It's going to be chemically <laughs> pretty close to the same, the same sen sensation, but it's a physical feeling, and a physical feeling is something different than an emotion. So, uh, you know, but even then, physical feelings, if you frame them, but I don't think you could frame something in the sense of it's not going to be addictive. I don't know if that's a possible frame in the relevant psychological uh, sense. Um, and it's, it's insidious because it creeps. You know, you, you will, if, if you know uh, alcoholics and have talked to them about the experience, you know, first it's a, it's a I'm a two can of beer uh, drinker and that's it. And then you, you meet them again. Yeah, I'm a three can of beer drinker and that's it. And then uh, you meet them again sitting on the corner of a sidewalk and they're drunk and they want to borrow money. It's insidious. It sneaks up on you. Uh, and your rational brain justifies it. So... Good, good to get your take. I led you down that <laughs> led you down okay. that road at, near the end. Um, okay, so I there are a number of books that you mentioned uh, as we did this talk. I know that a lot of them are more recent than the one that I have here. So, um, what are ways that people can access your books, um, more about your work, and learn more about you and anything you've written or or produced? Um, best way is to simply go to my website, William B. Irvin, B as in boy, Irvin, uh, dot com. And it has a bunch of free stuff to read, a bunch of stuff to listen to, uh, podcasts that I've done. Uh, at some point when this is published, this podcast will be uh, listed uh, there. There's more of me than any human should have to tolerate. <laughs> um, uh, so it's a stoic test just to just to do that, but there's uh, there's uh, uh, plenty of stuff, and there are there are the Stoics themselves. Uh, you uh, you might want to read a book, an introduction to Stoics before doing it, but to actually read the Stoics, yes, they wrote two thousand years ago. Yes, yes, they were philosophers, but they're very readable, and they still speak in a way that uh, we in the twenty first century can read and appreciate. Still have my copy of Meditations, which is the, the yep. inroad into all of this. Yeah, um, Professor Irvin, thank you so much. You are—I know that we have a tendency to attribute blame and uh, glory to people where it's not due, but I'm just going to say you're responsible for a lot of deep thinking on my end, and and probably some happiness too. And I appreciate you coming on to talk to me about it. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs>